do think as women, you know, we are sort of conditioned to spend a lot of time thinking about how others perceive us, right? This is just like a feature of gender inequality. Um, and it really can be such a distraction from what matters to you and your purpose, right? If you spend all your time kind of thinking about, oh, is this person like me or do they think I'm smart or think I'm competent or am I alienating this person or, but I think at the end of the day, that doesn't sort of propel you anywhere. Um, but I think that, you know, when I wish looking back, you know, I would tell myself spend less time on that and more time really really honing in on what is your kind of unique value that you can bring to the setting that you're in and kind of focusing on that um, is what I would want to tell myself. It's something I try to tell myself now. Welcome to season three of Confident with me, Sherry West, and my fearless daughter, Olivia. This season, we're going to talk with some fierce, unapologetically ambitious women about what it means to be an inclusive leader. Are you ready? Episode three, Colleen Ammerman talks closing the gender gap. Welcome, welcome everyone. Well, guess what? Today is our first podcast interview that we're conducting with a high school graduate. Congratulations, Yay. Olivia. How are you feeling as a, as a high school grad? I'm excited. I'm ready for the next chapter, ready to take the world by storm. Absolutely. And you are so fierce and magnificent and bold. And I can't wait to watch you launch into the world. And for our listeners who don't know, Olivia will be attending UPenn in the fall. And I was hoping, Olivia, we could take this opportunity to announce to the world that you plan to continue the podcast at college, right? Of course. I plan to stay involved in the girl in any and every way possible. That's right. Because there's a lot of work to be done to accelerate gender equality, right? Of course. And it, Awesome. Well, with that, let's get into this interview. We've got a great guest today. Colleen Ammerman is the director of the Gender Initiative at Harvard Business School. She works with faculty leadership to support a research community and a platform for disseminating insights for advancing equity, diversity, and inclusion in organization. She's also the co-author of the book, Glass Half Broken, Shattering the Barriers That Still Hold Women Back at Work. Welcome to Confident, Colleen. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And congratulations on your yeah. new book. It's so we're so excited to talk to you today. Thank you. I'm I'm thrilled to be here and be talking about the book and whatever else comes up. <laughs> so let's get started. Yeah. So just to start off, could you tell us something that Google doesn't know about you? That is a great question. I love that question. I might steal that for other interviews. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny, I'm 41. So good thing about being that age is that, you know, good or bad is that you know, my sort of middle school and high school years were not captured on social media or that's good. You know, good. <laughs> Trust me, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I think it's good because I look back, oh my gosh, some of those things I'm glad are not out there. But so something Google would not know about me is that in my junior year of high school, I played uh, Betty Paris in The Crucible, Arthur Miller's, of course, very, very famous play about the Salem witch trials. And Betty is not a, a major character at all, but she's in the very opening scene of the play. I don't know if you have read it or seen it recently, but, uh, you know, she's a child who, you know, is having this fit. She thinks she's, you know, possessed by one of these demons. Um, and so I had this very dramatic scene, you know, of kind of screaming and yelling um, to that opens the play. So that was a fun memory. And I probably am, I think, glad that that wasn't captured on, you know, an iPhone for, you know, posterity. <laughs> That's so, that's interesting. And I actually um, am so interested in the Salem Witch Trials right now because I recently read Alice Hoffman's Magic Lessons book, which is of course about that time period. And it is such a fascinating- It is, yes. That's a whole other podcast conversation. Yes, that is. Yeah. That is. So let's get into this yeah. podcast. 
So could you tell us about the Harvard Business School Gender Initiative and how is this initiative advancing gender equality? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Gender Initiative launched about six years ago. We sort of you know, officially launched in 2015. Uh, and I helped to launch the initiative, which has been a really, really cool thing to get to be a part of. Um, so we have sort of three pillars of our work. One is really around um, advancing research in this domain and really not just gender. We kind of pull in all of the faculty and PhD students at Harvard Business School who are working on some dimension of, you know, inequality in the workplace, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Obviously, gender is a piece of that, but it's not limited to that. Um, so part of what we do is just creating a community for those scholars and helping to catalyze and advance new research. Um, the other pillar of our work, the second one, is really around business education and being, you know, one of the many change agents working to make business education more diverse and in particular really thinking about our curricula and trying to you know move away from this very narrow image of what leadership is right that is very white very male you know, all these other um, kind of archetypes and show students um, not just at HBS but business schools around the world a much broader understanding of leadership and then the third um, pillar of our work is really around getting you know, the great research and cases and, and things that we're producing at the school out to people who can use them, you know, out to people in companies or uh, leaders who can sort of apply it to the work they're doing and make it better. So that's, uh, you know, what this book is. This is kind of an example of that. My co-author and I um, a few years ago decided that, you know, we actually had, um, you know, enough in terms of different projects we were working on to create a book that we hope, you know, can can provide um, sort of a roadmap for people who are working toward gender equity, whether it's, you know, in a small team or, you know, a Fortune 500 company. Mm, such, it's such important work. Yeah. And I'm so yeah. glad that Harvard is taking this on. Obviously, with Harvard's scholarly leadership in this area, it's certainly mm -hmm. going to make a big impact. Um, so just, I'd like to hear a little bit about what you're seeing. And of course, the time is where more companies are certainly saying that they're um, focused on diversity and inclusion, and, and they're certainly saying that they want more women in leadership positions, but just curious that, of what you're seeing. Are you seeing real change in this area? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I mean, I think change is not linear, you know, is the kind of headline I would give. I mean, even looking at our own institution. So part of the book, um, we have kind of an epilogue in the book where we actually dig into the history of women at Harvard Business School and look at kind of how far we've come, what has changed, and then where we still have work to do, you, you know, around diversity and inclusion at the school. You know, and my co-author and I often talk about this as if you really zoom out and look at this whole journey, it's kind of a story of, you know, two steps forward, one step back, right? Which I think is just generally true about change processes, right? So you think about organizations, you know, putting in place great new policies and educating employees and all of that, you know, taking a couple steps forward, but then often there are, there's some steps back, right? For different reasons, there can be backlash sometimes against change. Also just, it can be challenging, you know, for even if you really want to make the changes, it can be challenging, you have competing priorities and competing needs. So I think, you know, all that's to say, I think progress is happening. I just think we have to sort of be, um, you know, in it for the long haul. I think if we expect to just have smooth, linear, easy progress, we're going to be frustrated and, and demoralized. And we've really got to think about changing um, organizations and really changing society for greater gender equity as something that, you know, all of us have to dig in and sort of commit to incremental progress over the long term. Hmm. And so appropriate that you say sometimes there's steps forward and sometimes there's steps back because right now during the pandemic, it seems that we're seeing some large steps back for women. And although some women 
are moving forward and shattering the glass ceiling, as you write about in your book, others have been forced to step back, and especially women and girls of color. I'm curious about your thoughts on how we accelerate an equitable, equitable recovery from the pandemic. I mean, this is so important, and it's something, you know, my co-author and I started thinking about a lot um, very early on, right, as the pandemics, you know, started to have this effect of, you know, shutting schools, shutting daycares, right, and really seeing, of course, um, you know, the effects that it was having on women's participation in the labor force very quickly. Um, You know, I think, of course, it's been really, I think, scary and disheartening and discouraging to see those effects. But the one sort of silver lining I see is that we are having more of a conversation about these issues. Um, Because the fact is, all of the, you know, outcomes of the pandemic, you know, you know, when it comes to these issues of women, you know, stepping back from, you know, needing to leave jobs or even losing jobs, you know, involuntarily, these were problems that were already there, mm-hmm. right? These were underlying structural problems. You know, for instance, the fact that women of color are overly concentrated in um, industries with, um, uh, you know, fewer job protections, right? Where they don't have the advantages of people um, in other kinds of industries um, where there's more job protections, more flexibility. And then of course, just the disproportionate caregiving burden um, that women shoulder. These were all problems well, you know, prior to COVID, um, and certainly we knew about them, you know, research was being done, people were writing about it, but it did not really have that level of attention that we're seeing now. So what I hope is that just collectively as a society, we're able to have the conversations about these structural problems, right? About, for instance, these racial inequalities in the types of work that people do and the barriers um, that people have to higher income, higher paying, more stable jobs. Um, And then of course, infrastructure around childcare, right? It's understanding that we need um, to make childcare and caregiving kind of it's part of how our economy functions, right? And we need to have a broader plan for this as a society. So as much as it's been difficult to see the effects on women, I'm glad that we are having a conversation at this high level about those problems because they were very much an issue for a lot of women in their careers, you know, long before COVID. Mm, such yeah. a great point. And of course, you're right that these systemic issues um, have been there and that the, the pandemic simply sh- sh- is shine a light on these inequalities. Um, and, and I'm curious if the type of public re- policy response you support, do you, do you support, for example, the Marshall Plan for Moms, or um, what are your thoughts on how yeah, we can- it's, no, it's a great question. It's a great question. And, you know, I, I, you know, the policy interventions are definitely outside my area of expertise. So, you know, I, I don't, you know, there's people who study that and like really look at what are the potential outcomes of certain types of policy interventions and what's worked well in other countries. But I think at sort of a baseline level, you know, we definitely, again, need to understand that um, caregiving is basic economic infrastructure, right? And in fact, you know, there's so much unpaid care work that supports and holds up the economy. Um, so I think definitely, um, you know, I think the Marshall Plan for Moms has, a, you know, a lot of great um, positions in it. Um, and I, I do think we need, um, uh, you know, sort of, a, you know, broad structural change to how we support caregiving, right? And I think there's multiple ways to do that. Um, here in Massachusetts, you know, there is um, a, a bill um, for uh, universal pre-K, right, which is a, a one, one way of addressing that, you know, which I think is showing um, a lot of promise and is, I know, getting a lot of support among my reps in Massachusetts, which I'm pleased to see. So I hope that both at the state and federal level, we're going to see, you know, some bigger plays, right, not just kind of working around the margins, but actually making some structural changes. Right, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. 
And, you know, as you were saying, like, there are more women in higher paying jobs than ever before. And I mean, there is still such a gap, though. Um, in 2021, like the number of women running uh, Fortune 500 businesses hit an all time record, which sounds great. But then you look at the numbers and it's there's 41 now out of five, which is only 8%. And I think it's less than 1% for women of color. So how like do we capitalize and accelerate this progress? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it is great to see change happening at those very high levels because it sends a message, right? Representation certainly matters for all kinds of reasons. And, you know, one of the things that we learned um, doing research for the book, you know, we interviewed tons of people for the book, including a lot of women who had um, been very successful, who have kind of made it through, you know, sort of the barriers and actually achieved, you know, a senior executive um, uh, role. And one of the things that a lot of them talked about was how important seeing women who were role models earlier in their career, you know, one talked about being in a company where there was a female CEO and how critical that was to her. So I think that, you know, is great to see. And I, I think it's important to kind of understand um, how important it is for anyone to be able to see someone in leadership in their field that shares their identity, right? And in the US, especially race and gender are just so, such salient parts of our identity. So when you don't see anybody who shares either or both those qualities, it just makes it all the more challenging for you. But I think the thing that sometimes gets missed in talking about things like, you know, uh, Fortune 500, C you know, CEOs or other kind of you know, upper echelons of leadership is how much work we still need to do, you know, at, you know, at, at a lower level, because th those, you know, the fact that, you know, under 10% of Fortune 500 CEOs are, are women, you know, is, is, a, is an outcome of what's happening prior to that, right? It's an outcome of the fact that we have this pipeline that actually starts out pretty gender equal at the ent entry level in most industries, and then just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So I think that Yes, we should sort of, um, you know, uh, capitalize on having, you know, those women in these positions to really be visible and be role models, but not let that distract us from how much work we still need to do to get women to move up through those middle layers to get to the point where they can be, um, you know, contenders for those kinds of positions. Because until we change more of what's happening kind of in the, the middle part of the pyramid, so to speak, we're not going to see the gains at the top. Right. I mean, yeah. we, we agree with you yeah. wholeheartedly. And that's something at Live Girl, we're trying to address that visibility gap of, of you know, showing our girls um, the fierce female role mm -hmm. models that are out there and also giving them access. And we have a program called She Works, which is a career readiness and internship program, because right now about 91% of college students gain their internships through connections and mostly familial connections. And so, you know, we aim with SheWorks to level that internship playing field. And, you know, I, we believe that's how you change the game. So we, we agree yeah. wholeheartedly with everything you're saying. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'd also, I'd love to talk more about your new book, which for our listeners focuses on the gender gap, why it persists and how we can close it. So really what's the most important thing that people should know about your book? Cause there's so yeah. much in there. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all so important. Yeah. Thank you. No, thank you so much. I mean, I think that the a big takeaway I want people to understand just before you even read the book is that it is a book for everyone. It's not just a book for women. Um, and it's really a book that offers, um, both kind of an understanding of why gender inequalities persist, right? We've made a lot of progress. You know, we kind of situate the book at this moment where a lot has happened that is, you know, a big improvement over the way things used to be, right? I mean, 50 years ago, you had, um, you know, 
job ads, classified ads that were actually segregated by gender, right? You literally had, you'd open the newspaper and you'd have jobs for women and jobs for men, right? So we don't have that anymore. That's no longer legal to do. And yet, we, as we were just talking about, we're still seeing, you know, the upper um, echelons of leadership, women are so underrepresented. So, um, you know, we, we situate the book to say, here's why that's happening. But then we provide kind of, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, sort of a three-part framework for how to address it. And it's something that anybody can apply and sort of whatever your sphere of influence is, whether you like manage a small team or you are, you know, a senior leader, again, whatever your gender, there's something that you can do. So I think that's what I want people to know is it's not a book just for women. It's really a book for everybody who cares about this topic. And it will give you some very kind of actionable advice about what to do to, you know, to be a change agent, right. And to kind of help push this effort forward. Yeah. And I think this is a very important book. I think everyone should read it. Um, because, you know, at Live Girl, we, we work a lot with the internal barriers in young women, like building the confidence and the skills that they need to lean into leadership positions. But I love the focus in your book about the external yeah. barriers, yeah. the systemic barriers that companies yeah. need to change. And so just talk a little bit about that, like your advice to companies, what they need to be doing right now um, to create inclusive workspaces and to change the game and to make sure that, you know, we've got women that are able to, to rise up to the se- senior levels in every company. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one thing we wanted to do with the book, right, is to help, you know, uh, again, managers, companies, leaders figure out what they can do to change the context, right? Because women can only do so much, you know, and it's great organizations like yours and many others and other great books out there helping women kind of get the skills and the sort of equipment, right, to navigate right. the world. Yeah. But then we also need to change those those barriers that they're trying to overcome, right? We really need to do both. Um, so I think the advice to companies, you know, is really um, we talk about sort of um, companies needing to address the structural processes and barriers, but then also the culture, right? So this really means, you know, on the one hand, you've got to have um, policies and practices that promote equity and inclusion, right? And that really it's about trying to take bias out of the man the way you manage people, right? And that's actually hard to do. Um, especially because a lot of, you know, as I'm sure you know, and your listeners know today, a lot of bias is much more subtle. Oftentimes it's unconscious. We're not even really aware of it. Um, But there actually are a lot of things that you can do based in research to kind of help make sure that people, you know, individual decision makers are kind of able to set those biases aside or use frameworks and tools, right, that prevent that bias from coming into play. So in one chapter of the book, we, we kind of walk you through what are all the processes a person goes through, right, as an employee, all the way from getting recruited to, you know, interviewing to, you know, getting promoted and all of that. And we actually have, you know, some very um, evidence-based recommendations within each process about how an organization can kind of look at those, create the right policies and structure. Um, but we really emphasize you need to pair that with culture. And that's really about qualities of the individual manager, right? Kind of, um, you know, figuring out how to cultivate um, inclusion and equity in the way that you approach your role as a manager, because you've got to have both. We tell the story in the book, um, you know, from, uh, you know, decades ago, um, kind of earlier, I think, than anybody would have realized there was, um, there was this guy who was running an equity research department on Wall Street. This was like the early 90s, which 
you know, not exactly known as a friendly time um, uh, on Wall Street, you know, to say the least. Um, And he did a lot of really innovative things in terms of instituting flexibility, um, you know, having interview panels, right, with women on it to kind of show to prospective women analysts who are, you know, applying, like, this is a place where you can be successful, Um, you know, giving direct and actionable feedback in really structured ways to help people advance and kind of sending the message that, um, you know, you don't have to fit this stereotypical hyper-masculine model to succeed. Had huge success with this approach, you know, had really cornered the market on high-performing women analysts. Um, Also had great, you know, this ended up being a healthy culture for everybody. So the male analysts were also very successful and really improved their effectiveness and performance. It's an awesome story about structures he put in place. However, the kind of unfortunate thing is that it doesn't have a very happy ending because um, he left that firm and there was nothing, there was no, uh, there was nothing to sustain what he had done. There wasn't the, you know, uh, underlying structure and culture of the firm to actually make a difference. So as inclusive as he was as a manager, he didn't have policies and procedures at the structural overarching level to support it. So as soon as he left, you know, they lost all of those gains. So we kind of emphasize it's really this joint approach of structure and culture. Hmm. Such a great point. It needs to be sustained in order to be sustainable. Yeah. The, 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 the policies need to be in place. And I know we have a lot of conversations with our SheWorks employees, you know, congratulating these companies and, and creating seats at the table for women and people of color. But it's more than that, too. It's it's making sure that they're creating the space for their yeah. voices to be heard, especially, you know, the voices of the marginalized um, people. So like, I, I, we, I agree with everything you're saying, the policies, the culture, all of that needs to happen. I'd be curious, I know you did a ton of research for this book. Was there anything you learned about systemic gender discrimination that surprised you? That's a great question. Um, you know, the, the one thing that was surprising um, that, we, that we found was that, uh, we, so we interviewed a ton of people. As you said, we did a lot of research and we also did surveys and drew a lot on a lot of other, you know, scholarship. Um, but we interviewed a lot of different people at different stages of their careers. And we interviewed a number of young people, both men and women, when they were about to graduate college. So they knew like the job they were going into, you know, but they were not there yet. They were just finishing up um, undergraduate. And then we interviewed them a year later. So when they were like less than a year, but a little ways into that first job. And then we interviewed a subset of them about five years later. And what was surprising to us was how quickly, um, especially the women's experiences started to shift when, once they got into the workplace and it really kind of disappointed their expectations. So really all of them, both men and women, um, but really to a person when they were asked about, you know, do you think gender kind of will be a barrier or an issue in your career? Um, they really said no, right? They, and they said, look, when I look at the top level of like the, the industry I'm going into, I can see how few women there are. Clearly there's been a lot of gender discrimination in the past, but my experience, you know, throughout my education and schooling has really been gender equal. I've seen a lot of, you know, women leaders and my peers, you know, have been have been leaders. Um, so I think that as we go into the workforce, you know, my cohort, we're going to change that, you know, when we're at that stage in our career, it's going to look very different. And they were really excited about that. But often, you know, for a lot of them, not even the full year into their first job at that at that second interview, they were saying, you know, I don't actually feel like this is a level playing field you know, it had started to change. So, you know, there was one example is a woman who, uh, you know, said to us in that second interview, you know, 
when this, she was in part of this sort of rotational, very prestigious rotational program in a marketing firm. And she said, when the senior executive who sponsors our cohort comes to meet with us, you know, quarterly or whatever it was, he remembers all of the men's names and none of the women's names. Right. So it's like little, very subtle things like that. But they started to say, huh, I don't actually feel like I'm having equal experience. So what was surprising to us was how quickly that happened. And I think it just shows, again, kind of to your earlier point, how much work we still need to do at the organizational level. Right. Because these are young women who went to an elite college, super smart, like super ambitious, like they had all of the confidence and skills, you know, to be highly successful and to really contribute. But yet really immediately they started to see, oh, I'm not quite on equal footing. Um, And so that was, you know, kind of disheartening to see, but it just really shows, I think, you know, the urgency, right, of needing to do that work at the organizational level to really unleash the potential of those young women. Right. That's a powerful story. Yeah. And I know that like you're talking about this and clearly there are so many of these like external barriers and that, you know, in companies, sometimes the, the, the skills that women have just like aren't enough. But what leadership skills do young women need to develop to lean in and try to begin to close this gap? Yeah, and I definitely don't want the message to sort of be, oh, there's nothing you can do, because I think there is a lot. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Yeah. I know there's, you know, the again, the great work that, you know, your group is doing and others, um, you know, really contribute to that. One, um, you know, uh, sort of piece of advice that a woman that we interviewed who was very senior had been very successful um, said that we quoted in the book that that really resonates with me. And I think it's I've been giving it out as advice is she said, look, at the end of the day, your kind of confidence and, you know, belief in yourself and your own capabilities is really all you have, right? Like at the core, like that's something that, you know, you um, kind of carry with you wherever you go. And she said, so if you find yourself in a situation in a setting in a team in a company where that's being diminished, right? Where you kind of feel the environment is taking yeah. that away from you. You really need to, to get out as soon as you can. You know, she said, uh, uh, you know, recognizing that can be really hard to find a new job or scary or whatever. But she said, if you're in an environment that, you know, is tearing down your belief in yourself and your confidence, you know, that's, you've, you've got to move. Right. And I just think that's really important advice, right? Because I think often when we talk about, changing jobs or getting, you know, to your next, uh, your next chapter, you know, we think about a lot of these tactical things like, oh, well, I need to get more experience in X, or I'm trying to get to this certain level. But I think breaking it down to is this an environment that's really um, actually promoting my growth and making me feel, you know, more and more capable and more and more like I can kind of aspire to grow and develop and lead, you know, that, you know, all the other stuff, right, is, you know, it's important. But if you don't have that at the core, you're not going to go where you, where you need to go. So that's advice that I, I just think is really wonderful. And then I've, I've been, I've been giving out sort of on her behalf. <laughs> and Colleen, yeah. as a mother, I think that's such important advice. I mean, I'm looking at my daughter right now who will be starting at UPenn in the fall and then I'll, out into the workforce. And I, I definitely want her to know that, right, to be in these environments that celebrate her mm-hmm. and to make her feel uh, that gives her the confidence that she deserves to have. So that's, yeah. I think that's brilliant advice. Absolutely. And that, yeah, it really, that really is just great advice. Every woman should know their worth and know when they're being valued versus when they're not. Um, but do you have, what other advice do you wish that someone would have given your teen self? Oh, that's a good yeah. question. I mean, that, I think, you know, I, like I said, that advice you know, I think it's great advice for everyone and definitely resonated with me. Um, I think, you know, for myself, I think, uh, you know, what I wish, you know, someone had told me, and I think this applies to everyone. I do think 
as women, you know, we are sort of conditioned to spend a lot of time thinking about how others perceive us, right? This is just like a feature of gender inequality. Um, and it really can be such a distraction from what matters to you and your purpose, right? If you spend all your time kind of thinking about, oh, is this person like me or do they think I'm smart or think I'm competent or am I alienating this person or, um, you know, you know, kind of how, how am I being viewed and perceived. And this is something even senior level women struggle with. You know, we, we talk to a lot of them about this. But I think at the end of the day, you know, again, it, it, it does not, that doesn't sort of propel you anywhere, right? That's a big energy and time sink, right? You can spend a lot of time on that. Um, but I think that, you know, what I wish looking back, you know, I would tell myself, spend less time on that and more time really honing in on what do you want to do? What, you know, what's your purpose? What do you want to contribute? What is your kind of unique value that you can bring to the setting that you're in? And kind of focusing on that um, is what I would want to tell myself. It's something I try to tell myself now. And there's even research, you know, that suggests for leaders, people in leadership roles, this actually benefits you, right? It actually makes you seem more authentic. You know, people respond better when you can stay anchored in your purpose. So that's, that's what I would that's go back and stay anchored in your purpose. Yeah. I like that. Um, Colleen, thank you so much for sharing. We could talk to you all day. There's yeah. so much expertise here, but what I just want everyone to know is to read your book, um, Glass Half Broken, Shattering the Barriers That Still Hold Women Back at Work. It's available on Amazon and everywhere. It's a must read. Um, just to close it up today, tell us one fun thing you're looking forward to this summer because you can't be researching all the time, right? <laughs> no, so what are you, do, what are you gonna do for fun this summer? <laughs> I am getting ready to take vacation in a couple weeks. I'm actually going on a road trip this summer um, to visit um, family and friends. I'm doing a drive through Pennsylvania, out to Chicago, and then down to Oklahoma, which is where most of my family is, is where I grew up. So I'm really looking forward to after being, you know, right in quarantine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Open road I think everyone's and, traveling yeah. this summer. <laughs> exactly. So I am looking forward to that, looking forward to seeing friends and family and yes, just having a little having a little freedom this summer. Yeah. That's that sounds fun. Well and thank you again, Colleen, and thank you to Harvard for all you're doing with your gender initiative, which is making a big impact and, and we're grateful. So thank you. Thank you. This has been a really fun conversation.